Okay, friends, um, the, the plan this morning is to begin a new sermon series. Okay, and it's a new sermon series entitled, uh, quite simply, What Does It Mean to Be a Reformed Church? We talk about being a reformed church. What does, it, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a reformed church? And there really are, are no prizes for guessing why we're going down this route. Is there? Like we have just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, haven't we? Like 500 years since Martin Luther, he nailed his 95 theses to that door in the, the church in Wittenberg. And every evangelical church worth its salt is kind of marking this event, isn't it? Uh, there are sermon series all over the place. There are podcasts. There are, uh, there's lectures on Luther coming out of our ears. But do you not think that we and here have uh, a duty to kind of follow these churches and follow suit? I mean, what are we? What's London City Presbyterian Church? We are a Reformed church. We claim, actually, to adhere to the theology of the 16th century Reformation. We claim to stand with those guys. Uh, so surely we also, as a congregation, we need to mark this uh, wonderful event. But that said, we are going to do things, as always, we're going to do things slightly differently at LCPC. See, a lot of the other churches, what they're doing just now, uh, quite rightly and, and brilliantly, they're having sermon series on the five, what we call five solas of the Reformation. Are they? You, you see that a lot. A sermon series on the five kind of slogans that came out of the 16th century. We're not going to go down that route. We're going to do something a, a bit different. And said, let me try and lay it out for you what we're going to do. In this sermon series, we're going to have three distinct parts. First of all, we're going to look at the, what would we say, the foundations of, of a reformed church. Like, what are the fundamental things at London City Presbyterian Church? So that's over the next few weeks. Then the next part of it, we're going to think about the theology of a reformed church. What are the, some of the fundamental things we believe and profess to believe the theology? And then the third section, should we get there? God willing, it will be the practice of a reformed church. So do you see that the plan, the, the foundations, the theology, the practice of a reformed church, that's the plan. Who, who knows? You know, we, we pray and, and we hope, but that's, that's where we're going to go. Right, that's the plan. Here's the question for you. Let me turn it to you. Where do we begin? You can see that's a pretty, it's an issue, isn't it? Like this is a pretty big topic we're talking about. What does it mean to be a church, a, a, a reformed church? Where on earth do we begin? I'll tell you this, this morning, we're going to begin where Calvin begins. We're going to begin where the Westminster Confession faith begins. Because this morning, we're going to begin with the Bible. And maybe, even in that, you see the logic there. Because how can we think about God? Like, how can we think about theology? How can we think about Christ Jesus? Unless we understand the book that tells us about these wonderful things. So we're going to think about the Bible. This is not what we're going to do. We're not this morning going to have this exhaustive sweep of the reformed doctrine of Scripture. We're, we're not going to go there. We've done that not all that long ago. Instead, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at one portion of God's Word. One section of Scripture to see this, to see what God's Word says about itself. And the first 
thing that we need to notice here in St. Peter, the first heading is the authority of Scripture. That's our first heading this morning, the authority of Scripture. Maybe it's an obvious thing to say this morning, but one of the main areas of controversy in the Reformation of the 16th century, it revolved around what we might call uh, authority. So I'm saying that one of the burning issues in the Reformation of the 16th century was who had the final say in matters of faith and in spiritual matters. Who Who had the authority? Who had the final say? Was it the church? Like, was the established church the supreme authority? Or was it the Bible? Was that the supreme authority? Or was it the Bible in the hands of the church? Do you, do you see the idea? Like, where could a Christian go and look for authoritative truth and teaching? Well, this morning, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that that's the same issue that Peter is dealing with and what you've got in front of you here just now. I wonder, friends, did you notice where Peter was when he's writing this? He he gives you a little hint in verse 15. Do you see where he was? He speaks about his departure. And I think most likely it seems that Peter at this point is on death row. That Peter is imprisoned in Rome and he's awaiting his death. And because of that, what is it that Peter knows? Oh, wait a minute, he knows pretty soon the church is going to be left without her apostles. Isn't that right? That very soon the church, Peter's going to be dead. The other men who have been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, they're also going to be dead and gone. So what does Peter need to do? Peter feels the need here to write to the church, to tell the church where she can find authority of truth when he's gone, when he's dead, when all the apostles are long dead, where can they find the authority of truth? And I think you need to appreciate that that is all the more, that need for authority of teaching is all the more pressing here at this point in time. You see, if you know Second Peter, you know this. That as you go on in this book, what becomes clear is that in those churches that Peter's writing to, there were false teachers on the loose. Do you see the idea that in the, the churches Peter's writing to, that there were men infiltrating those churches, and they were men who denied the gospel? Now, listen, most especially, and this is important for later on, these were false teachers who were denying the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it? So, where does Peter point the church for truth? For assurance about the gospel. Where does he point them? Right. Two places. Okay. First place he points the church is to an event. And I wonder, uh, in the reading, when uh, Peter Fraser was reading earlier on there, St. Peter, did you notice the event? Um, I know it's early, maybe Sunday morning, but did you notice the event in the chapter that Peter refers to? In fact, let's be mean for a moment. Let's, let's put the, the boys and girls to the test, shall we? So boys and girls, let me explain the event to you and see if you know it. Maybe your mums and your dads and people round about can help you here. So in this chapter, Peter speaks about... So it's Peter, remember it's Peter. And he speaks about being high on a mountaintop. Holy hell. And he sees something marvelous. Glory. And he talks about hearing the voice of God. Now, boys and girls, do you 
Remember, we've gone through the gospel of Mark. Does it ring any bells? Maybe your mums and dads can tell you what the event is. Hopefully your mums and dads know the event that we're dealing with. It is, of course, the trans... It's the transfiguration. Transfiguration. Now, friends, the rest of us, think about that for a moment. Why is Peter speaking here when the church needs assurance? Why is he speaking about the transfiguration? Do you see what he's doing? He's reminding the churches that he's writing to that the gospel is not make-believe. Do you see that? He's reminding them the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ is not something made up. It's not a fable. What's he saying? And he's saying, he's seen it. He's saying, you look me, Peter, somebody you know, somebody you trust, I've seen with my own eyes the eternal glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see? He says, for your confidence in the gospel, consider there is eyewitness testimony. But then, then, it is the second assurance he gives that is more pertinent for us this morning. Now, I'd ask you to do this as a congregation. Would you just glance at verse 19 and consider where he points us for our confidence. Verse 19. He speaks there. Now, you see it, don't you? He speaks of the prophetic. What is it? The prophetic word. Boys and girls, again, here's an easier one. When your minister talks to you about the prophetic word, or when your minister talks about God's word, what am I talking about? Talking about the Bible. And friends, please listen. Because this is what it takes off. This is what it gets really interesting. There are two ways that we could understand what Peter says here about the Bible. See, look how the ESV renders verse 19 once again. If you're using the church Bible, look what it says exactly. So Peter mentions what? Transfiguration. Then the prophetic word. And what is the phrase he now uses in verse 19? The ESV says, more fully, what is it? More fully confirmed. So friends, do you see what Peter could be saying? He could be saying that what the transfiguration has done is more fully confirm the truth of Scripture. You see it? Like the Old Testament has done what? The Old Testament had prophet. This is why we read Zechariah. The Old Testament had prophesied the coming, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophesied these events. And what's Peter saying? He's saying those Old Testament prophecies, they are reinforced by what he has seen upon that glorious hill, the Mount of Transfiguration. You see the idea? He could be saying that the Transfiguration confirms the truth of the Bible. Now that's one way you can understand it, and I think it's legitimate, but there's another way, and this is, this is beautiful. I love this. This I find really very exciting. Because some other translations of the Bible, they render verse 19 like this. You ready for this? They say that the prophetic word is, here's the, here's the phrase, it is something more sure. And if Peter's saying that, do you see what he's saying to the churches? He's saying, I have seen the glory of Jesus. I've seen it with my eyes. But even if you don't believe me, you can still know the gospel is true. Why? Because you've got scripture. You've got God's word. As though Peter is saying to these churches, even more sure than my eyewitness testimony, even more sure than that is the written testimony of God's word. And you see that's lovely, don't you? You see it's beautiful. But what's the obvious thing for me to say here? 
no matter which way you understand verse 19, what's the obvious thing to say? Peter's making the same point. That whether the transfiguration, whether it confirms the authority of the Bible, or whether the transfiguration is superseded by the authority of the Bible, what's his point? Where does the church look for a confidence? You see, you look to Scripture. The scripture is where we look for assurance, for confidence, for, 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 for absolute assurance of the truth of the gospel. And friends, we could talk for hours, as other people have done, about the 16th century Reformation. The fact that that was their point, wasn't it? The reformers, they were saying, we stand here, here we stand, we stand on scripture, sola scriptura. And we could talk about that forever. I don't want to do that. Friends, I want to ask you this. Does the situation of the church in the first century sound familiar to you? Are you a Christian in here who is beginning to doubt and doubt the wonder of the good news? Are you feeling that just now? Are you feeling the doubts that are being hurled at you by society and by the people around you and by the media? Are you feeling the doubts that are being thrown at you by the evil one, by Satan? himself? Are you doubting the identity of Jesus? Doubting the salvation of Jesus? Doubting that he is going to come again soon? Well, do you not hear what God is saying to us in Second Peter 1? He's surely saying to us, go back to the first things. Go back to what you know. Go back to God's holy word. I'm saying this to you, friends. You can, as a Christian today, you can know that Christ is coming. You can know that the gospel is true. How do you know it? Because it's written. So we see something of the authority of Scripture. That begs a question, doesn't it? It really does beg a question. Because if we're saying, for our assurance, <laughs> and for our confidence, we've got to go to the Bible. What's the question? The question is, what is it that's so special about this book that we're reading from and studying? What's so special about the Bible that makes it so trustworthy? Yes? So that takes us on to our second heading. And that is the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture. I uh, remember many, many years ago, I was sitting in a lecture hall at university. A big packed lecture hall. And it was a church history lecture. And the guy was getting really excited about church history, as, as really only church historians could do. And he was talking about, I think it was, the, the diet of worms, worms, however you want to pronounce it. You know, where Martin Luther is having his war of words with, with Eck and the established church about scripture and justification and so forth. And the guy's getting really passionate, this church historian. And I remember what he said. At one point he said, oh, do you know what, class, uh, I just wish I had been there. <laughs> I just wish that I'd been in that hall of diaphragms to hear Martin Luther speak. My, my first reaction to that was, this guy needs to get a life, you know. Uh, he's desperate to be back in the 16th century, this guy, this guy needs to get out much, much more. But... As I've got older, I begin to understand it a little bit. And do you know what is really quite strange? In this sort of unusual way, that's what you and I are able to do just now. Because you must understand that we come to now a verse that was at really the beating heart of the 16th century Reformation. 
A verse here now that sits at the heart of the disagreements between the Catholic Church and Reformed Protestantism. You want to see it? Look at verse 20. Have a look at verse 20. So Peter's saying, you know, we, we, we know the good news is true. The Bible tells you it's true. And then he says this. We know this cause no prophecy of Scripture. Now, please read it with me. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. I'll read it again just so that we've all got it. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, you ready for Catholic doctrine? <laughs> you ready? The Catholic Church would say that what that means is that Scripture cannot be authoritatively understood by individuals. You understand? That really, they would say that only the established church can truly decree the real meaning of the biblical text. In some senses, they might say that the Bible's dangerous in the hands of individuals. The reason why many centuries ago, just a few meters down from us just now in St. Paul's Courtyard, visiting, go and visit the courtyard. In St. Paul's Courtyard, do you know what they did? The Catholic Church, they gathered up every copy they could find of the Bible in English. They gathered them all together. What do you think they did? They burnt it. They burnt them all. Why? The, Bible's, the Bible cannot be authoritatively understood by individuals. The Bible's dangerous in the hands of individuals. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that understanding of that, that understanding of that verse is wrong. Let me just give you one example. When Peter says here that scripture, no prophecy of scripture comes from, that verb, that word comes from, most obvious meaning means it doesn't originate with. It's not created by someone. So do you see what Peter's saying? Peter is not saying that individuals cannot interpret scripture. What's Peter saying here? What's he saying? He's saying no prophecy of scripture originates with men, with individuals. No prophecy of scripture is created, fabricated by individuals, by men. And when we understand that, do you see what it does? Not only does it knock Catholic doctrine out of the park, what does it do? Do you know what it does? It answers our question. What was the question? How can you as a Christian in here, how can you have confidence in God's word? How can you have confidence in this book? How do you know the gospel is true? How? Because this book is not created, written by men. This is a book given to us, authored by Almighty God. And I know that you're familiar with this. Like in a sense, it's so frustrating for me because we're deadened to that truth. But would you do this? Would you pretend you were just hearing that for the very first time this morning? Imagine hearing it for the first time. That what you've got on your lap just now and in your hands, what is it? It is a book that is penned and written, inspired, authored by the Lord God of heaven and earth. Isn't that an incredible thing? Isn't that a marvelous thing? Do you know what is even better though? That Peter here tells us how God has done it. Look at verse 21. Look what he says. He says, no prophecy ever produced by man. How did this happen? But men spoke from God. And what that tells you about is what is called concurrence. 
The idea that, yes, Almighty God has written this book. How did he do it? Did he just drop scripture down from the sky onto a pulpit somewhere? He has used men. He has used and involved sinful humanity in the writing of the book. Look at verse, look at how it goes on. He says, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word from which we get the word fairy boat. Do you see what he's saying? The Holy Spirit has transported men along in the writing of this book. God has breathed his inerrant word into the hearts of his human authors, but it is those sinful men who have taken pen to paper, so to speak. Isn't it? We look at this for a moment. Isn't it marvelous? I mean, you take a step back, the, the exalted elevated nature of the Bibles. Do you see what you've got at your fingertips? You've got a book to you from God. It is a love letter to you from God. And I can say this to you, all of it, all of it is God breathed. Do you know why that's wonderful? It means now the church, we can have confidence We can, you can have confidence. The gospel is true. Christ has died for your sin. It is true. He is coming back. And how can we have confidence? It's a book from God. And who is our God? He is a God who does not lie. So we see the authority of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture. We're just going to close the third thing, and that is the utilizing of Scripture. The utilizing of Scripture. Hopefully you're, you're with me this morning as we, we stand back and as we look at the, the nature of the Bible. That brings us to a thought, though, surely. What does this mean for you? Like we're, we're seeing here that this is an infallible word that God has given to you, an inerrant word. What does the nature of the Bible mean that you should be doing with the Bible? What should we do with the Bible? I've been really quite sneaky this morning, in a sense. Um, what I've done is I've skipped over the main point that Peter is making in this chapter of Scripture. I've actually completely bypassed it altogether. And uh, I'll get in trouble if we don't go back to this. Okay, so would you look at verse 19? Have a look at verse 19. So he is speaking to the church about the prophetic word. And what is the command or the instruction that he gives to the church? He says this, that we are to pay attention to scripture and that very much is the kind of climax of this letter thus far do you see the command that he's giving to the church he's saying we are to be constantly attentive to god's word now listen what does that mean we friends are to meditate upon scripture and we are to memorize scripture that we as christians are to study scripture and we are to store up scripture in our hearts. That we are to pray through scripture. And we are to praise God for scripture. That we are to trust and obey scripture. But we are also to tell others 
Scripture. Do you see what he's saying to the church? He's saying we've got to pay heed to this. We've got to pay attention to it. Be constantly attentive to the Word of God. Now that raises an issue for me. It really does. Because I want to know what that will mean. Let's say tomorrow morning, you and I, on the back of what we're seeing from Peter, let's say we rise early tomorrow. And let's say we resolve to live in a different way. Let's say we resolve to focus, to read and study the Bible more than we've been doing on the back of this. Let's say we were to do that. What effect will that have on our lives? What does that actually mean for the people of God if we were to do that? Do you see? Look at verse 19. What does he say? He says, pay attention to Scripture as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And hopefully you're familiar with that language. We have just sung the same, haven't we? In the Psalms, the Bible often refers to itself as a lamp. It's a light. But what does that mean? Oh, surely you know. Isn't it true, friends, this morning that you are very aware that you live in a dark place? Who here in this room just now was not in some way affected by the atrocities in Texas just a few days ago? There's people who attend the church who were affected by that. And if that didn't shake you, Surely these revelations about the way that the rich and famous use their money and their tax, surely that leaves a pretty bad taste in your mouth, doesn't it? You see it? We live in a wicked place. We live in an evil place. We live in a dark place. And what is Peter saying here? That if we focus on the Bible... If we live in light of Scripture, if we if we learn about God, about Christ Jesus, about the Gospel from Scripture, despite that darkness all around, what happens to the people of God? If we focus on Scripture, we live in the day. Despite the darkness all around, the darkness, disgusting darkness of the city, if we focus on God's Word, we live in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that it? Isn't it? But I'll leave you with this. This is the... The last thing this morning. Until when? I mean, you see what Peter's saying to you? Peter's saying, we focus, we listen, we look for our confidence and assurance to God's word. Is there an end point to, to all of this? Look what he says. Verse 19, he says, pay attention to scripture until, listen, until the day dawns and the morning star rises and you Christian friends can see exactly what he's talking about. You can see it on the horizon. Can you know? think about the context? The false teachers were denying, what did I say? They were denying the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying? We live by the light of God's holy word until what? Until our Savior returns. To that moment happens. A marvelous moment. A moment when the sky splits in two and the trumpet sounds. And that one who was transfigured before the three apostles, before he appears. You see the message, don't you? We focus on the written word until the incarnate words. He appears in the clouds. And he appears before us, his church, and before the waiting world. Friends, please listen. The scriptures of the Old and New Testament, they are a foundation stone a reformed church like ours. Why? Because they teach us of Jesus. The scriptures tell us of 
a salvation that has been freely won by Jesus and freely offered to the world by the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be that we in here as the people of God do as Peter is exhorting us to do. May we all pay greater attention to God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that though the grass withers and the flowers fall, that your word will continue forever. We thank you that it is living and it is active. We thank you that it is life-giving. We thank you that you, in your boundless benevolence and grace, have given to us your word, that we can stand in Scripture, that we can know that Christ is risen from the dead, that our sin is taken in Christ, and we know it because of the testimony of your scriptures. Lord God, we pray that you would enable us to live in light of your word, to tell others where salvation is to be found. Lord, we praise you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.